You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Back together and coming up, full market coverage ahead. We're going to kick off the second quarter with the Nasdaq 100. Is it a bill market, but will it stay? Morgan Stanley, well, it thinks maybe you should be warning about this tech rally. Plus, Tesla, one name weighing on the market. Is deliveries fall short of Elon Musk's own expectations? We'll bring you the details. And speaking of Musk, we'll get the latest on his spat with the New York Times as the newspaper loses its verified badge on Twitter. That and so much more coming up. But first, Ed, I mean, we've got to delve into, though, the market moves when it comes to the Nasdaq 100. Of course, we're just saying, soaring into a bull market in the first quarter. But Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson, he's been warning that the rally maybe is overdone. Let's bring in Bloomberg's Isabel Lee just to talk about the technicals at play, some of the reasoning behind Isabel, the movement into big tech. It was almost like a search for safety, right? Now people, particularly Morgan Stanley and also JP Morgan, saying that might be time to pull back from that trade. Exactly. So Morgan Stanley said it's overdone. So last week, the tech sector hit the bull market, which means it was up 20% from its December lows. But for Mike Wilson, that was just a bit too much. And he said it's just because people were treating it as a traditional defensive play amidst all the banking turmoil. But he still recommends safer areas like utilities, like consumer sector, because he also said that when something hits its trough, the likelihood is it'll just rally back up. So he mm-hmm. said he would prefer to see more durable lows before investors pile in aggressively. But for now, it's kind of a no-go for him. Hey, Isabel, if there's one thing Karen and I have learned in recent weeks around the tech sector, it's one session a market does not make. But we're kind of looking at economic data again, right? We're still going back to the same discussion around inflation and the Fed. That's exactly right, which is why people are probably thinking that, okay, you know, that's what... That's why risk assets are rallying because they're like, inflation is over. We'd probably, not over, but we've hit the peak. Fed will start cutting sometime this year. People have various estimates, but it's kind of bullish overall, which is that risk assets are rallying. Now Bitcoin is up. It enjoyed its best quarter, um, 72% or 74% in the past two years. All risk assets are really up and they're just really enjoying the bounce. And here's some good news for the Bitcoin lovers. April is usually a good month for Bitcoin, actually even for stocks. And by some measures, 
Bitcoin was up in six out of the last 10 years. Isabel, dig in here because you've been writing great stories together with Vildana about, well, the lack of liquidity in Bitcoin, even though we see this run up in price. Yes, and because there's lack of liquidity, then the prices are more prone to volatility because one big whale or one big move can just pull the price lower or higher. And that's kind of been the danger in this sector. But for now, especially with the banking turmoil, people are celebrating it because this is why Bitcoin was made. It's to circumvent all the intermediaries to just put their trust into the thing that they trust and not trust Wall Street. Bitcoin was born right after the GFC when people were mad at banks, when people didn't trust anyone. So now it's kind of their victory lap. But it still remains to be seen whether the banking turmoil actually pushed Bitcoin higher. It's if that's why I love covering the space, you'll never just know why in particular. And we're going to be delving into who else is winning amid the bank turmoil. And, well, we've got a VC name on talking that it's fintech, in fact, as well. Isabel Lee, great to have you on all things risk assets. Let's stick with the markets, though, because actually one risk asset, one key player in the technology space, Tesla, well, it actually didn't perform particularly well in March. And today it's weighing on the broader indices once again. Ed, you are the first and foremost person I think of when I think of Tesla. Just dig in a little bit about why we're seeing Musk fall short on his delivery issues, even though we see the price cuts coming. Yeah, yeah. Record deliveries in the first quarter of 2023. 423,000 EVs in the first three months of the year. It's a modest growth, right? You look at the the end of 2022, 405,000. It's about 4% sequentially quarter on quarter. Above street expectations. But the bigger picture is that it does not put Tesla on track for that 50% annual average growth rate that Elon Musk has talked about. It's not enough to show that demand is still there. There are still demand concerns for the street, right? And one point here is that Elon Musk talked in the first two weeks of January about demand running at twice the rate of production. You dig into the data, kind of seems like demand might have tapered off towards the end of the quarter. Even though the prices have been pulled back, even though we've got, well, them firing on all cylinders and actually making the autos. What what does a backlog of potential cars sitting around mean in terms of profitability? That's certainly the right data point. Look at the three orange bars, four orange bars here, four straight quarter where production is greater than the number of vehicles that Tesla's delivered. One explanation from Tesla is they're still trying to get the mix of where these vehicles are produced more even, which results in particularly the Model S and Model X being in transit at the end of the quarter. You can't consider those delivered vehicles because they're on the back of a truck, essentially. It was the lowest delivery level for S and X in that quarter just gone, going back to the third quarter of 2021. So something not quite working there. What analysts are saying is we're worried that actually there is still a demand issue here. Remember, Elon Musk has pledged that if there is a deep recession this year, Tesla's happy to sacrifice profit margin because they've got that strong balance sheet and they want to keep up that steady rate of growth. It's just that we're not seeing that steady rate of growth. And many still worry, maybe in some part, Ed, that he's distracted, right? He's distracted right. with the other key company that's under his overview is Twitter. And we know that at the moment, he's in particular a spat with New York Times. It resulted in the paper losing its verified badge over its refusal to pay for that all-important checkmark. Joining us now, Bloomberg's Asia Counts. Just how important is that checkmark for something like New York Times, the yellow badge? 
It's critical for an organization like the New York Times to have that badge because it verifies that they are, in fact, a news institution. You can imagine the challenges that could arise if another account were to impersonate the New York Times and start spreading false news or misinformation. So it's really critical that they have that check mark. I think we point out, Caroline Wright, that Bloomberg News has said that it won't reimburse staff uh, to get their own uh, Twitter blue method of verification. Bloomberg News and its various newsroom accounts does have verification. What's really difficult to understand is if you go on someone's profile and hover over the blue check mark, it's either a Twitter blue account or it's a le- legacy verified account that may or may not be notable. They haven't taken the action that they said they would. No, and that's actually a change, right? If you were to look a week ago when you would hover over the badge, you could see very clearly this person paid for Twitter Blue or this person was a legacy verified institution or individual. So it's actually created more confusion, and we really we really don't know. And they haven't taken away some of those legacy check marks that they said they would on April 1st. They've taken away some, but some are still out there. Cara, one thing we discussed with Aisha on, on Friday was the idea that also advertisers are kind of not very convinced by Musk. They've kind of fled the platform Um, Where does this platform stand in terms of its health? Because you have Elon Musk, on the other hand, saying we're at record levels of use, right, in terms of user numbers. Yeah, that's what's been really interesting. They do have more daily users since, according to Musk's numbers since the last time he released them. But you're losing advertisers, and that was about 89% of revenue. And so Twitter Blue is seen as a way to make back some of that revenue. But the subscriber numbers are also really low. It's less than 1%, I think, according to the last numbers. So it's, uh, Twitter's in a really challenging position right now, and they have to either convince people to subscribe or they're going to have to woo back those advertisers, and neither one of those has really been going well. Do we know any updated numbers on subscribers? I mean, this is the joy of it being a privately held business. But do we know if eventually people will be pushed to make that payment? You know, analysts I've talked to and people in the industry don't think that it will really push the needle. We don't really know the latest numbers. Again, it is a private company, so it's hard to tell. There's some independent researchers that are are tracking it. But from what we know, it's less than 300,000 people. We want to thank you. Staying on top of all things social, Aisha Counts, great to have you on once again. Meanwhile, let's talk about another form of social communication. Former President Donald Trump said on Truth Social, a post that he plans to leave Mar-a-Lago at noon today to fly to New York ahead of his historic arraignment in a Manhattan courtroom. That's tomorrow. Bloomberg Simone Foxman is outside of the courthouse. And Simone, do we know if in fact he is en route? As of yet, we haven't seen uh, any reports from the pool that he has actually moved out of Mar-a-Lago. But we do expect him to fly to New York later today and then come come here to Trump Tower behind me. And this is really where some of the political theatrics could kick off. You may be able to see there are some uh, banners behind me. We've seen in the last couple of minutes some Trump supporters walking with banners and kind of lining up over there. But there are barricades all around us. Then, of course, the big event is when he goes south to the DA's office, to the courthouse to be arraigned, uh, expected tomorrow afternoon. Simone, as you say, now moved across to Trump Tower and looks busy. It looks like people are bracing themselves. And Ed, this is something that you've continued to report on throughout the show. It does become a technology story in many ways, just the way in which news is consumed nowadays. Well, very much so, because you look at the stock reaction in those sort of conservative social media platforms. They all rose Friday. I think some of the gains being given up now. What we were discussing is that Trump is using true socials to communicate in real time. The rest of the world is discussing this, Simone, on Twitter. Go back to the basis of what's to come. His lawyer was pretty clear. He will hand himself in, essentially. And what process happens after that? 
Yeah, so essentially we're expecting him to go to the Supreme Court house uh, downtown there. We don't know actually whether or not he will walk in the front door, whether he's going to try and stage some sort of perp walk that he could use again for those fundraising efforts to try and paint himself as a victim. But he will go in there, he'll get fingerprinted, um, he'll likely have to take some sort of mugshot photo and then he'll go upstairs where this arraignment will take place. After that, he intends to leave New York City pretty quickly though, um, fly back to Mar-a-Lago and then there will be a press conference tomorrow evening. And of course at that time we'll actually know what these charges are, they remain under seal and shortly thereafter we will get uh, Donald Trump's response. We will cover every development here on Bloomberg Television. Bloomberg Simone Foxman, thank you out in the field reporting. M&A Monday. Shares of WWE sliding after Endeavor agreed to buy the company for $9.3 billion. That's including debt. WWE will combine with Endeavor's ultimate fighting championship to form a new company that's going to be listed on the New York Stock Exchange. Joining us now for more is Bloomberg's Lucas Shaw, who unfortunately for him had a busy weekend. I'm sure Lucas with the scoop. But Ari Emanuel of Endeavor saying they will create a global live sports and entertainment pure play built where the industry is headed. Where's it headed? Well, look, they have the biggest mixed martial arts league in the world in, in the Ultimate Fighting Championship. And they now have WWE, which, while not technically a sport, you know, it's scripted entertainment, it performs much in the same way uh, from a media perspective because people do show up to watch it live. And then the ways it makes money are very similar to UFC. You know, you think about it and UFC makes money from media deals, it makes money from ticket sales, and it makes money from sponsorships. WWE is the exact same way, and I think they see an opportunity to sort of leverage that combined scale uh, in negotiations with sponsorships, certainly, uh, and then to find efficiencies in things like staging the events. I think when you think about the media landscape, Lucas, you know, many of the broadcast networks fight over being able to show WWE. Do we have any sense of how things now change, how they expand the offering, how they make it more digital? You know, it's it's too soon to, to know that, but if you look back in time, there was a, a point where the WWE created its own streaming service, uh, and then after a couple of years decided that that wasn't the best idea and was better to just distribute it via the major players. So it has deals on linear TV with the USA Network uh, and Fox, and then it has a streaming deal with Peacock. The the TV deals are coming up. Uh, the negotiations are, were actually supposed to start kind of this past weekend with WrestleMania, uh, I, I imagine that now the, the Endeavor folks will have a lot of thoughts on what that should do. But if you look in, in kind of Ari Emanuel's track record and Mark Shapiro, who's the president of Endeavor, you know, one of the ways they built UFC into a huge business, because there were doubts, people thought that, that maybe they had overpaid for UFC, was they struck these huge deals with ESPN. Um, and I, I think they'll be able to do something similar with WWE, depending on who the partner is. Well, let's talk about the owner of ESPN, because... It's an all-important annual general meeting about to be upon us, Lucas. Yeah, you know, uh, look, Disney is is going through a, a very strange moment right now, or or perhaps an unsettling moment for for investors and for employees. Uh, you know, they're in the midst of laying off about seven thousand employees. They did sort of one round of that in in the past couple of weeks, with much bigger rounds to come. Uh, and then, you know, current CEO Bob Iger is is both trying to restructure the company and restore faith in it uh, after the some of the damage done by his predecessor Bob Chapek, while simultaneously thinking about who his successor should be. 
All right, Bloomberg's Lucas Shaw, who leads our streaming screen time coverage. Thank you. Now, coming up, from ByteDance to Micron, Apple and beyond, we'll bring you the headlines that you need to know in Talking Tech. Speaking of, take a look at shares of Micron. What we've seen, Caro, in, in the last four sessions or so is retaliation from China in terms of pushing back on technology restrictions, a sort of tit for tat what the United States is doing. Micron lower by one and a half percent. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Time for Talking Tech, starting with Apple, facing a billion-dollar trial over its Apple Watch secrets. Medical devices maker Massimo is taking the case before a federal jury in California this week after claiming Apple used confidential information from two former executives it hired in certain functions and designs of its flagship Apple Watch. We will track that trial. Revenue of TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, surged more than 30% to surpass 80 billion US dollars in 2022. That matches the tally at arch-rival Tencent and surpasses many internet firms. That pace of expansion underscores the resilience of ByteDance's business, even at a time when Washington's threatened to join India in banning TikTok. And Beijing launching a probe into Micron, opening a new front in Beijing's chip war with the US. And Chinese chip-related stocks really advancing amid optimism that they will benefit from the nation's growing self-reliance and its push after Beijing launched that probe into Micron technology. Caroline. Well, from China to the Bay Area, because we want to dig in a little bit more on where you are currently 
well, residing in, because it's been hit hard. We know San Francisco by the pandemic. It's had a tough time coming back as tech workers just kept working from home. They left many of the downtown perhaps emptier than many would have liked. And now that old school bang run that turned the tech hub into the center of the financial turmoil has just, of course, still hit a city when it's down. Bloomberg's San Francisco bureau chief, Karen Breslau, is with us for more on what does this mean for San Francisco's future? You've got a beautifully written, really thought-provoking piece on the terminal today. Thank you, Caroline. Um, I think the storms that have pounded the city nonstop since January really are a metaphor for the storm of bad news that just has hit this city over and over. I mean, you talked about uh, the, you know, the, the bust hitting the city. Uh, obviously, the tech downturn was one thing, uh, but then we had SVB and, and the shakiness in the banking sector. Uh, we have the affordability crisis, uh, a public safety crisis, um, and it has and the fact that, that this is a city where, you know, return to office rates are the lowest in the United States. So it's just all hit the city at once. It's a right. triple whammy. We're looking at live pictures facing down the Embarcadero towards mm-hmm. downtown. Two key data points, occupancy and unemployment. What have you learned in our reporting? Well, there's a paradox there. Occupancy is a, is a really shocking 29.7%, the highest anywhere, right? 29.7% of those buildings, nearly a third, are empty. Uh, and yet the unemployment rate in the city is 2.8%. So that um, is the paradox of San Francisco, that you have so much innovation, self-employment, startups, and uh, those typically are not companies in those early stages that need these giant office towers. I've called this city home for five years now. Mm-hmm. Caroline has lived in this city. Mm-hmm. We ask ourselves the same questions. One crisis at a different time. You spoke to the mayor. What's her proposal to fix all of this in the long-term health? Well, her proposal, I mean, she, her, her job is, is to be the cheerleader, and, she, and she, I thought she, she, she gave a, you know, a noble effort. Um, what she has talked about relentlessly is diversification. She has always argued that, that this over-reliance on the tech sector um, is, is dangerous for San Francisco's economy. Of course, she's right. She's not the first person to have that uh, observation. Uh, but she uh, wants to attract bioscience, life science, uh, tourism, um, convert some of these empty towers into housing, uh, which would, uh, you know, basically deal with two crises at once, yet is incredibly expensive uh, and doesn't always pencil out. So, um, you know, she, uh, and, and lure back tourists. So all of that is going to take a cleanup and a perception that this is a safe and beautiful city, uh, and it certainly is beautiful. Can't argue with that. It is. It's going to take a big marketing campaign to remind everyone of that, Karen. And the, the tourists are back. The yeah. tourists are coming back. I mean, back, I've been going there. Europe. And it feels like, and that's what's sort of also the juxtaposition here, is that when you're in some of the areas that tourists are busy, it feels thriving. The restaurants are busy and humming. But then yep. you go to downtown, it does feel emptier. Will yes, downtown and the, the neighborhoods feel, are hopping. Well, will they feel even emptier if you're getting Meta, getting some of the key tech companies doing layoffs as well? Um, I think it is so empty right now, it's hard to imagine, you know, another few thousand um, uh, missing from downtown. And those employees are also distributed. Some of them are in San Francisco. Some of them are at, at the company's headquarters uh, south of here in San Mateo County. But I think um, what has to happen is, you know, pretty soon the, as the prices plummet, right, for this commercial real estate, there will be a value proposition and somebody, you know, some companies will move in. Uh, the neighborhoods are hot 
shopping. Uh, we talk about that in the story, uh, right. particularly around Hayes Valley, which is now AI Valley or Cerebral Valley. Pick right. your brain part. Yeah, but uh, there is action. All there right, is activity. Bloomberg's Karen Breslau, who leads our coverage of California. Thank you. Now, coming up, all things AI. Experts calling for a halt to next-gen development. Europe growing more cautious. We're going to have all the details. We're quite a big name in the sector, Caroline. This is Bloomberg. I really care about access and also a reinforcement of bias. But, but the thing to do is to address these concerns in like a open and transparent way, not to call for a halt to development. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. That was conviction founder Sarah Gow. They're saying it's important to keep experimentation open and going in generative AI. Her comment comes after more than a thousand AI experts, industry participants signed a petition calling for a temporary halt to developing the next generation of AI tools. One of them, Kevin Barragona, founder of the artificial intelligence text-to-image generator Deep AI, who joins me on set in San Francisco. Why did you sign the petition? So the petition calls for a halt to the development of extremely large generative models, like the GPT-5 that's in development. And this is an incredibly disruptive technology. We don't even really know what it will be capable of. But what we do know is most likely advanced reasoning capabilities similar to the human brain. So in a sense, this is just too disruptive, I think, for the current moment. There's no reason we should really be building it right now. What's being proposed is a six-month halt in order to establish a shared set of safety protocols. There are names from all around the world. How do you make a six-month halt happen where all the stakeholders comply? It's an uphill battle, certainly. Um, I don't think even the creators of the letter are overly optimistic. It's a big coordination problem, but we're hopeful that all the parties around the world will see the benefit yeah. of this type of pause, which I don't think holds back technology more broadly. Yeah, Caroline. Kevin is a participant in this industry. Last week we had VCs, academics, who all basically said the same. This is really hard to pull off. Six months, get everyone to participate. Can I be, Kevin, therefore, just dig in a little bit as to why you, a founder of DeepAI, are saying this? Because could I be led to believe that in some way OpenAI is a competitive threat to you? Well, certainly they are a competitor. We have many competitors. Um, I don't think it's because they're a competitive threat. And I think that this technology is so powerful, it's not going to matter who owns it mm. or even which country it's built in. What matters most is that it's built at all. This is an, such an incredibly powerful technology that I've started calling it the nuclear weapons of software. Okay, Kevin. I'm going to dial back from that a little bit because we've had academics like Emily Bender of University of Washington on saying, look, when you are using even the turn of phrase artificial intelligence, it just keeps doubling down on the hype. It keeps reinforcing our view that this is in some way a competitor to human thought and that actually, look, this is a worry about disinformation, yes, but the overall power of large language models, it's basically... It, it makes sense to us because we make it intelligent. 
What do you say to that, to the stochastic parrot argument, for example? I think they're rather hollow. I think these models are absolutely intelligent. They're very general. They have advanced reasoning capabilities. In many ways, they're already superhuman. And it won't be long before but they're, they're superhuman the in almost everything. They're just predicting the next word we might use. Mm-hmm. That's correct. How is that superhuman? Like, well, these models... They, they know more than any single human, and they can recall the information much quicker, and then they have very similar reasoning capabilities to a human. Kevin, you're a signatory to the petition. We thank you for coming on, answering our questions. Many of those signatories did not. Uh, mm -hmm. There is an argument. I'm going back to this. Mm -hmm. Is this sour grapes? Is this you collectively recognizing OpenAI? is so far ahead that you need a six-month period to catch up? Oh, absolutely not. Um, we're super impressed with what they've built. We're actually huge fans of them. We don't like view them as a threat particularly. We just think that this technology is way too disruptive for its own good in the present moment. Well, quickly, I want yeah. to ask you, what good has come out of this in the last five days? I think it's a great conversation starter. It's getting the world th thinking in the right terms because this is, this is not just like creating a new social network. This is an incredibly disruptive new technology. I would almost liken the global issue almost like climate change and that we have like a tragedy of the commons where all of the leading AI labs know they're creating something dangerous, but none of them really want to stop it. Really thoughtful and thought-provoking. Thank you, Kevin Barragona, his Deep AI founder, course signatory to that key piece to worry about. So the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank has sent shockwaves throughout the banking ecosystem, and it also prompted many startups to seek refuge in fintech solutions for support. Let's bring in Andrea Lamari from Manhattan Ventures Partners for more on this now. And Andrea, how much has fintech benefited or have we had to raise questions about its foundations and, well, overall ability to handle some of the inbound? Yeah, so overall, the world of fintech and startups has really evolved, quite frankly, a lot in the last few weeks. I would say generally, which is so interesting, is that we're facing what many of us VCs call the opposite of the celery effect. So uh, prior to the SVB collapse, liquidity was running rampant, right? Startups were getting funding all over the place. Nowadays, startups are being a lot more cautious around what credit and debit looks like for them going forward and that readily available capital just doesn't look as liquid right going yeah. forward so ge generally it's a very hard time to be a fintech but there's a lot of solutions coming to market that are really exciting you of course have Klarna in your portfolio you'll have some other areas of fintech which will win out because we've seen the inflows to the likes of brex and to some of the other mercury banks are they the ones that are going to be winning yeah, so I would say startups generally have an amazing trend of trusting other startups, right? They all know that they're in the trenches together. The solutions like Klarna, Mercury, Brex are offering really good low interest rate products for startups to consider to support their banking 
and charter that they need. So I think cash deposits are key, Mm. as well as offering just a really simple solution to those end consumers. A lot of this, though, of course, Ed, is about confidence, not only confidence in the founders, confidence from the people putting money into these fintechs, founders, confidence from the VCs writing the checks. Yeah, and there is a spectrum of confidence we've had on this program, Andrea, across the venture capital community. Many actually saying, no, I'm plowing on. I'm writing checks, areas like artificial intelligence, fintech, activity. It won't be at 2021 levels, but it's still there. Is that what you're seeing? Yeah. So as the job of a venture capitalist, right, if we want to distill it down to its simplest form, our job is to write money, checks, and deploy that capital into startups. We can't just sit on it for too long. Though the dry powder is still there, the cautious nature of running a due diligence process has grown ever more present. And I would say just generally, the startup, it, the startups are getting the funding. I would say generally too, though, it's that they can't just rely on those debt facilities anymore as a backstop relative to what they were getting in venture equity dollars. So yeah, the VCs are deploying. They just aren't deploying as quickly as you said, Ed. Uh, Later in the program, we're going to be talking about man's return to the moon, around the moon at least, with Artemis 2. You were quite early, relatively speaking, into SpaceX. Lots of reports at the moment about the Saudis looking at investing in SpaceX. What's your read on the valuation of that company and, and why it's still attractive to you? So SpaceX overall is one of the strongest companies we see in deploying what is going to be some really mission critical launches. And I think generally where the big belief we have in seeing a massive upside potential, though obviously it's still a private company and we have to see where it goes, is their ability to deploy launches successfully at a very high velocity in the coming years. I think there's a lot of, you know, preeminent positivity around Elon's ability to do so. And so far their success rate relative to other companies building mission launches has been much higher and much more repeatable than others. So overall, that overhead is still high. They're going to need to keep raising money. We definitely imagine several more rounds of venture funding to go there. But in terms of success and conversion rate to successful launches, it's been Elon and we continue to believe so. When you are at the moment seeing companies having to raise money. A lot of them are doing it either at flat valuations, some of them doing down rounds. We are hearing, though, of some companies that have cut their valuations from a 409A perspective and then maybe trying to raise them again. I know Instacart's in your portfolio. What do you make of, well, companies that are having to realign the benchmark of how you value them? Yeah, so I would say generally, right, that concept of, of the 409A or that internal valuation that startups set is something that they utilize to create a price to issue stock options to new incoming employees. Now, initially when startups start doing that value, um, they do it typically about once a year. Then as a company grows and it gets closer to a formal exit event, that valuation and that 409A is typically done typically more often than once a year, two or three times a year. So what that means is a company like Instacart might be doing their valuation reporting based on obviously the reports we're seeing a lot more than once a year in that level of frequency. So with that said, we definitely expect companies who experience high growth in quarterly increments or even in half year increments to see that fluctuation in their internal foreign valuations as material things and uh, milestones happen within a company. So I would definitely expect that we see that kind of gyration happen across many of the later stage startups that are doing more frequent foreign A's. How close for Instacart is an exit, therefore, do you think? 
Well, generally, you know, as I said, the closer you do get to an exit, the more frequent these foreign RNA valuations do occur internally. So I would say typically companies that are on the cusp of a one year out, give or take duration, do make sense to be doing those valuations at this level of frequency. So that seems likely. I think a company like Instacart, like many others in the late stage, have really stacked their executive team and their product suite to be ready to face the public market and provide a really compelling narrative going into their IPO. So I think generally everyone's just rooting for them. And if it's not them, then one of the other large late stage companies to come in and be a strong catalyst for the IPO growth this year. Manhattan Venture Partners, Andrew Lamari, grateful for your time coming to us from Puerto Rico. Thank you. Now, a bipartisan group of U.S. lawmakers is taking their concerns about China to California this week, where they plan to meet with top tech and entertainment executives, as well as with Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen. The group is being led by Representative Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin, who chairs a new House panel focused on China. And it will meet on Thursday with some prominent VCs, including Mark Andreessen and Vinod Kosler, as well as executives from Google, Microsoft and Palantir. And... Apple's own CEO, Tim Cook, joining us with more Bloomberg's Dan Flatley out of Washington. Folks out of your neck of the woods going on the road to my neck of the woods. What will they talk about? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think one of the ways to sort of think about this is kind of like a soft power tour. So Congress is in recess over the next couple of weeks here in D.C. Lawmakers are looking for something to do. And they have kind of a natural reason to be in California this week because uh, the president of Thailand, um, excuse me, president of Taiwan uh, and her visit to uh, to California this week. So they are there uh, in part to, to meet with her, but also to sort of do a bit of a, as I said, a soft power tour and, and meet with some folks in Hollywood, meet with some folks in Silicon Valley, and sort of make the case uh, to them that China represents a real threat in their view, uh, but also to listen to what they have to say and sort of understand a bit more about their market concerns and why they want to be uh, certainly in business yeah. Uh, in China and how they're thinking about approaching their, you know, their upcoming uh, projects and things of that nature. Uh, Dan, do we expect them to mainly be preaching to the converted? We know that Vinod Kosler has been in Washington, for example, with Peter Thiel, flagging the concerns that they share around China. Yeah, I think there's definitely going to be a, an element of that. On Thursday, they're going to be having lunch at Stanford uh, University with some folks that, you know, may have a, a more hawkish view on China. But, you know, when they're going to be meeting with folks like Tim Cook or Bob Iger at Disney and, and, and Tim Cook at Apple, they're going to be talking to people who have really serious vested interests in the Chinese marketplace, who, are, who may have a, a bit of a different view and have the influence to talk to lawmakers in a way that they may not be used to being talked to, quite frankly, in, in a lot of respects, because they're going to be hearing from folks who want to continue those business lines into mm -hmm. China and are going to be talking to them in, in a way that, um, you know, is going to be sort of informal. So it's not going to be a congressional hearing, but is going to be, uh, I, I would say, probably a pretty strong exchange of views. Dan, how bipartisan does this run? At this point, I think uh, concerns about China are about as bipartisan an issue as you can find on Capitol Hill. Republicans and Democrats don't agree on a lot these days, but they certainly agree on that. I think that there are some variations, though, when you get down to how aggressive uh, some folks want to be. Um, there, there are certainly no shortage of hawks on the issue on, on either side of the aisle, but 
The Republicans tend to be a little bit more uh, aggressive in terms of what they want to do. The Democrats a little bit more circumspect. But as we saw with TikTok recently, there was a hearing on that on the Hill, as I'm sure you remember right. a couple of weeks ago. Um, it goes pretty deep and it goes, goes across both parties. Bluebase down flatly. Thank you. Caroline, speaking of Tim Kirk, something that caught my eye this Monday morning, the front cover of GQ magazine, Silicon Valley's quiet visionary, Tim Cook, GQ magazine, not known for his style, perhaps as Steve Jobs was. Really interesting read. A guy starting his day at 5 a.m., going through emails from customers, the gym, and then running the biggest tech company in the world. What do you make of that? Do tell me you're only halfway through the article, because it's quite a long one. It's, so, it's <laughs> endlessly long, but, but the point of it is he's so understated. Yeah. You know, we know very little about the man. He's not a big social media user, mm. uh, a la Elon Musk or something like that. And someone who was always very upfront and saying he doesn't feel normal. He's often been feeling like an outsider. But I think what was interesting was the way in which he was totally surprised by the journalist's perspective that people might scatter when he walks into a room. He clearly still has yes. that approachable nature. People wanting to sit near him, not being intimidated in some way. Well, there was an anecdote from Eddie Q, who leads the yeah. services, saying that he has four faces. He'd be brilliant at poker if he played. And I think that says everything. You never quite know, even to his close his allies in that company what he's thinking mm, maybe we should ask for a game i'm quite into poker at the moment meanwhile nice. coming up we'll bring you the details on the first of nasa's new mission to the moon with the astronauts just being named this morning more on that next and now earlier we were discussing ai so let's just take a quick look at baidu china the skepticism we're just talking about of course going to capitol hill capitol hill lawmakers coming to california to talk china but there's also skepticism around the power of baidu and its chat gpt competition of course the only bot will it really be able to substantiate some of the run-up in the shares we've seen of late down percent on the day this is bloomberg what if everyone at work were an expert communicator what if every doc message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice, or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. 
Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. NASA's name, the group of astronauts it's sending to venture around the moon on Artemis II. It's the first crewed mission on NASA's path to establishing a long-term presence on the moon and will launch in November of 2024 at the earliest. Bloomberg's Lauren Grush is out in Houston, was at the announcement. Who's heading to the moon, Lauren? Right, so it's actually a really star-studded crew that NASA named today. We have two mission specialists, Christina Cook and Jeremy Hansen of Canada, and Christina is with uh, a NASA astronaut. And then we have pilot Victor Glover and Commander Reed Wiseman. And just some notable things to point out about this crew, Christina Cook will be the first woman to go to deep space, Victor Glover the first person of color to go to deep space, and Jeremy will be the first non-American astronaut to go to deep space. So it's going to be a very historical mission for sure. Historical. They're performing, what, a lunar flyby, we understand, scheduled for next year. Just tell us where we are in the process of getting back there. Right. So uh, last year, I was at the Artemis 1 launch. So that was the very first mission, the main big mission in the Artemis program, which is to get back to the moon. And that one tested out the main flight hardware that will be sending humans into deep space. And now it's time to put people on that hardware. So now that 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 mission went well, we're going on to Artemis II, and these four astronauts will ride inside NASA's Orion capsule on top of the massive SLS rocket, and that will take them around the moon and back to test it out ahead of the historical landing that will hopefully happen sometime this decade. Right now it's scheduled for 2025. We'll see if that happens but eventually that will be the landing on the moon. So unfortunately, these astronauts won't be touching down on the surface, but they'll still be paving a really important road for the astronauts ahead. Lauren, great speaking with you. Try and cool down there in, of course, Texas, Lauren Grush. We thank her. And, I mean, not the only bit of aerospace news upon us. It feels as though we're talking SpaceX earlier with Manhattan Ventures. And also, it looks like there's a competitor on the scene right, Ed, when it comes to SpaceX. Hanwha, am I saying it right? Hanwha Aerospace is building the South Koreans' first commercial rocket. And it's a pretty ambitious target. Yeah, so they want to match SpaceX in price, getting payload to orbit at the same price. But this is really fascinating because they are born out of arms sales. This is an aerospace conglomerate, essentially, that's making money selling arms uh, to Ukraine in that conflict and putting the proceeds back into space exploration. Ambitious. But this is a a sector, Caro, that we're going to cover increasingly because it's not just the money that's going to it. Global interest taking off. (laughs) I knew you'd get a pun in there somehow. Ed, what a joy to be reconnected once again. Back on the show, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Yeah, and there is a lot to recap. Don't forget the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, iHeart, Bloomberg. So much to discuss this week in the world of tech. This is Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than a destination. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all. All of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a Stiefel Financial Advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.